online at tech.instacart.com, on Twitter, and on Facebook. Subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please write us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. It goes a long way to help other people discover our podcast, so thanks. Yeah, uh, so I've moved around a bit, basically consider home where I grew up, Dallas, uh, was there all through my growing years, all the way up until I went off to college, uh, even though I was born in New York, but still lived in Dallas pretty much all oh, my okay. life. I went to college, college in Colorado, so it was a bit of a change, uh, and then moved out to the East Coast and was in the Baltimore, D.C. area for oh, nice. like around 15 years before I moved mm-hmm. out here. Yeah, and, and after that, you moved here just because of the Twitter or like this? Yep, moved here for the job. Uh, I was having a hard time finding interesting work uh, in the D.C. area and it's decided to make the plunge to do this. Day. Yeah, it's almost all government contracting or you're way out in Virginia working for AWS or one of the companies that spun out of early .com 1.0, uh, you know, AOL. Yeah, type cool. work. So, so how, how did you, like, um, how did you end up in Twitter and what you used to do there? Uh, so there I was an SRE. It was really the first I had even heard that term. And, um, you know, I was doing sort of the mix of ops and software development with the idea being um, doing ops, or sorry, doing, using software development and using software techniques mm-hmm. to solve operational problems. So automating deployments, uh, some of it was just going back and documenting stuff that nobody had really written down. Everybody mm-hmm. just knew how to do a um, variety of things and really ended up just going there because uh, they made me a good offer and <laughs> decided to take the plunge and give it a try. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Um, yeah. so, and, uh, so and then you joined us and you pretty much also like, even though you're not called the three, you pretty much did the three just to Right. Yeah, so before Twitter, I was working with a lot of Hadoop clusters, and I was doing that at very small companies, so I was basically the person working on Hadoop, and I had to do everything, so mm-hmm. it was debugging hardware problems, debugging Java problems, application programming for the jobs we were running, debugging Hadoop framework problems. It got into a pretty wide range of different oddities of yeah. problems so it i was doing the work of an sre before they just mm-hmm. didn't call it that uh, and then moving into a larger organization there were at twitter there were hundreds of people writing jobs running against hadoop hundreds of people doing ops work and you know, a lot of sres and so you end up fitting into much more of a niche uh, role there so SRE worked worked well for me there. Yeah. Uh, so how, how did you end up on Instacart? Uh, so I ended up here largely because of John Phillips. Uh, we worked together a little bit at Living Social back in D.C. Mm-hmm. And we were chatting. He knew I was looking for a new job. He said, hey, come on over. Come give it a try. Uh, we had already reconnected. And we were at the time, we were both working on Elasticsearch and we're both 
both very small groups within our respective companies trying to figure out some of the oddities and why is this doing this? Why is this doing this? So we would bounce ideas off of each other and yeah, it wasn't hard to convince me to come over here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, John uh, can convince like pretty much everyone who knows yeah. him. <laughs> it was it sounded like interesting problems, interesting challenges. So yeah, it's so been fun. What's on your plate here right now? So what are you working on? <clears throat> so a lot of it right now is kind of boring, paying down technical debt. Um, we're going through and cleaning up a lot of the Ruby, Ruby libraries that are used to talk to Elasticsearch. Uh, cleaning up old code paths. Uh, probably the biggest thing is a tool called ES Hero that captures all of the requests going to Elasticsearch mm -hmm. and lets us do analysis on everything, figure out what's slow, where we're having problems. And that's been able to highlight a lot of, uh, let's just say, misuse mm -hmm. or non-ideal use of Elasticsearch, uh, queries that need tuning, things like that. Oh, so that's cool. been a lot of it, but and then we're also looking at upgrading to the latest version of Elasticsearch, and just with, um, you know, we've got, I think it's around 10 or 12 terabytes of data in our clusters, just the inertia to move from one version to another, it takes standing up a whole new cluster, copying all the data over, starting to write your fresh data to that, and then you can just start to actually point your staging servers at the new version, things like that, and start really testing it out. So it's is a it, long, slow process. It, yeah, is it, is it anything like specific why like, we really wanted like new version? Uh, like, the or version just, like, we're on right now is not supported anymore. It was end of life a while ago. Uh, Elastic, Elastic releases new versions pretty often. And just the reality is we're going to need to be doing a major version upgrade like probably soon. once every six months to a year, no mm -hmm. matter what, going forward. But, yeah, we we probably should have been doing this upgrade six months ago. <laughs> okay. Um, when we talked last time, we, we, we mentioned, you mentioned that like we really need to kind of be like much better about capacity planning. Can you, like, you told me that, like, in Twitter you had, like, a whole team working on that, so... Sure, uh, they had a dedicated team doing that, and it comes down to, for all of the different services, all of the different major capabilities, you would have an idea of, usually the metric is the number of requests per second that a particular instance of a service can handle, and then you have some traffic forecasting, uh, going into projecting what overall the number of requests per second that you mm -hmm. uh, that you expect to have. You have some spare capacity for failure, some spare capacity in case your forecast is off. But in general, we're large enough. I think we could probably do a pretty good job of forecasting mm -hmm. um, you know, projected usage of our services. And then it's really just matching those two up. And so... If you have something that can handle 100 requests per second and you know you have 1,000 requests per second coming in, you need you know, 12, maybe 15 instances of that service running, mm -hmm. you know, depending on how much margin of safety you need. It's really just doing that. Um, and I think we were chatting here that I, because we are so detached from the actual servers running and everything being virtualized, everything in Docker, mm -hmm. all that, 
I haven't even seen a graph for some of the services that I run here to see how much CPU or how much memory they're using. Um, so it would be nice to be able, just from a cost standpoint, to be able to go back and scale back some of mm -hmm. those that are maybe over-provisioned. I know we have a couple of services that are doing very simple tasks of reading messages off a queue and sending them into Elasticsearch for indexing mm -hmm. that are running with, I think, 8 gigabytes of RAM, and I can't imagine they're using more than... Like 500, 500 megabytes? Yeah, it's, if they're even using one gigabyte, it's <laughs> probably just because garbage collection isn't super efficient and it's bundling, you know, building up a little bit and not collecting as aggressively as it could. But yeah, I yeah. see. I mean, I know that like, we do have some um, um, automatic scaling for like a lot of services. Yep. At least the one that we wrote ourselves, not the, like, not the, uh, like, the Elasticsearch nodes. Yeah. But uh, the provision like the planning is still different one yep yeah and the auto scaling gives you a safety valve where you don't really need don't necessarily need to do as good of a job of capacity planning yeah. okay so can you think about anything else that like say twitter or like other companies that you were working with but uh, kind of used to do or like doing when you were here but like we don't and you really wish you were oh a, a big one and we have a couple of tooling issues as yeah. we ran into it and we were going back and forth today is i think um when we have commits that make it into our master branch on git that break the build there should be fire alarms going off and every it should be okay every there should be a small group of people maybe the tech leads on the different teams say okay stop whatever you're doing, let's fix this. Uh, mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many times I've been blocked because I work on a shared library. So if there's a problem in any one of the apps on the master branch, you can, it you pretty can much blocks me from being able to test my work or be able, being able to merge mm -hmm. it into master. So I, I think having a dedicated team working on that and making sure that that stays in a healthy place probably having some dedicated SRE type folks working on improving the tooling that we have around that. Mm -hmm. um, I know we have some issues right now where test status updates don't necessarily make it into uh, the pull requests in GitHub mm -hmm. correctly. So yeah, just making that smoother is a huge plus. Um, also just stability in our test frameworks. That's something that I worked on a bit again because I was working on these shared libraries whenever I update anything it builds almost every single app in the system so I am extremely sensitive it, to yeah. flaky tests and whenever CI breaks I have to actually go and look and say okay is this from my change or is this from a flaky test if it's from a flaky test it's probably worth me spending 20 or 30 minutes seeing if I can just fix that flaky test right, because you will be because I'm going to hit that like five or six yeah. more times. Um, and so I've, early on, I had done a lot of fixes around that. Um, there were some issues around in our CI environment with databases timing out and with Elasticsearch timing out, things like that, or just crashing. So I worked on updating those to the latest to match what we were running, using more stable and faster versions of it. Yeah, I, I think like maybe a lot of these issues will be less and less uh, relevant once we move into our like uh, ISC next or whatever their uh, the name of the project is. 
there's like kind of more container based and like kind of it, a lot it, more configuration. Yeah, it doesn't it. solve that yeah. problem though. It doesn't yeah. solve the you know CI the, somebody breaking something on master well, or the yeah. speed of yeah. things. Yeah. Um, do, do you have anything else like like that that's like really kind of been pain in your neck? Um, I'm trying to think of what else has been painful. It's uh, overall it's been pretty smooth here. Um, one of the issues is, at least for my part of what I work on, we do a lot with Kafka, mm -hmm. and all the messages being sent over that are just plain JSON, and we have some very limited schema checking and schema validation that happens before we let things go into Elasticsearch. I'm much more of a fan of having schemas everywhere clearly defined, doing validation on the publish side than the consumer side. Mm -hmm and doing all that, having some archival copy of it, maybe backed up to S3 so that we can reload and reprocess things. That's, honestly, that's probably one of the bigger pain points we've hit because if something gets through our schema validation, it can really wreak havoc on the Elasticsearch cluster. Um, we're set up in probably a not ideal situation where we can have uh, mapping data explosions where it just creates hundreds or thousands of new fields within our Elasticsearch structure and that can basically just crash Elasticsearch. <laughs> so I, I know that like Twitter uses like Scala which is like compiled so probably yep. they have this like so the other way around right that like since well they have that they also yeah. use protobufs for mm -hmm. and it, with the schema validation and with very detailed checking that happens. So it's more than Scala versus Ruby. It's it's okay, still yeah, they went being to able to check like, going, what's going over the wire. Okay. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so it just it's both like the, the serialization formats and the libraries, uh, client libraries being used. Yeah. It it's not an easy problem. I was chatting with with this with somebody a little bit today that it's no matter what technology you use, no matter what schema language you use no matter what serialization language you mm -hmm. use it's a an extremely hard problem to be able to go back look back in time and process old messages without breaking new software not having to have a million different adapter libraries it's yeah it's, it's a challenge <laughs> yeah it's a big problem and catalog dealing with this as well mm -hmm. they just have like different uh uh, different like environment around it, right? Right now they're like trying to uh, pretty much solve this problem, but with Snowflake, yeah, which also uses uh, Kafka underlying. Yeah. Um, so do, um, you you mentioned a lot of things like right now, like and we we're talking <coughs> about CI and CD and the uh, the Kafka and the test and like. So what's your typical kind of toolkit that you're using like? day-to-day, -day, like what, what, what are all the tools that you're using? Oh, sure. Um, so I'm basically just a bash person. I'm living in the command line to all, almost mm -hmm. all the time. I pretty much never use Finder on Mac mm -hmm. ever. Um, beyond that, just the regular tools that we use, Ruby, Git. Um, I'm trying to think of what some of the specifics are without diving too deep into our Ruby particulars. <laughs> um, I try to dockerize things whenever I can because mm -hmm. I've hit a lot of problems with Ruby versions and Cassandra versions and database versions and all mm -hmm. that but it's been a struggle just because some of our tooling isn't really set up to support that mm -hmm. um, beyond that yeah editor I switch between VI and VS code mm -hmm. uh, which I am really liking these days 
Um, trying to think of, yeah, I'm not a tool heavy kind of a person. I tend to just text just editor and, and bash. <laughs> yeah, text editor and bash, and I'm, I can probably get it done. <laughs> okay, um, so um, the, uh, like, the next is kind of cheesy question. So, like, is there any, like, technology that you either use here or don't use that, like, you're really excited about? And, uh, uh, coming from an infrastructure e kind of a background, probably the thing that I'm most excited about these days is Kubernetes. Uh, it's having played with it a little bit, it solves a huge number of the problems that you don't really notice as an application developer until you start looking at the behind the scenes infrastructure. So things like service discovery, things like security, being able to pass um, usernames and passwords in a secure manner, um, scalability of things, log aggregation, metrics aggregation, just so much of that ends up yeah, being, it it's the just books. there. Yeah. yeah, and it just works. You don't have to run all of the extra uh, things to run it. That's probably the number one thing for me, and I'm, I'm looking forward to the day whenever <laughs> we can have something yeah. and either be using that or be using something that's that easy. Um, we're not far from it, but uh, you know, still some things like we're relying on load balancer updates within AWS, which can have, we can have rate limiting issues and it can take a while rolling out versions. Mm -hmm. You don't have, we don't have a great amount of visibility to it mm -hmm. into what we have because most of what we're doing is our own tooling. So uh, yeah, we can always add it because we have access yeah. to the source, but it's nice whenever you just have something that just works. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think, some of, the, some of the things that we're doing here, Terraform we're using yeah. here now uh, for a bit of the stuff that I really like because up until then we were doing things where some stuff you would have a script that you would run that would set up things and define what you needed in AWS. Sometimes you would have to go into the console by hand and configure things. Having that in Terraform, I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of having it as something that you can audit, something you can go and look at, something that you can change and mm -hmm. be able to search around and see what's defined, see how somebody else did it, and yes. have it be easily repeatable. Yeah, and not just repeatable, but also versions, right? So yeah. just like, yep. <laughs> I mean, having, having that, like, bash access to it versus just going through all the yeah. shenanigans of the AWS, uh, <laughs> like, console. Oh, think about yeah. that. One of my favorite tools yeah. that I use probably a hundred times a day is the Silver Searcher AG. Yeah. Uh, just for kind of the combined find and grab. I use that all the time for searching for things like that. Yeah. Hey, yeah. who's using Dynamo in here? Just AG Dynamo can search the whole code base in tenth of a second. And yeah, yeah, yeah I love I, it. Yeah, I think I think yeah, just like using the the same grep like the AG or uh, RG or like there's like <coughs> number of things. Uh, did you actually uh, turn it on in the VS Code integration? I have it there. I don't use it. Um, I think that a couple of times that I've tried it, the interface for it and how to search through things, I don't like. So what I'll do sometimes is pull up the embedded terminal within VS Code and do AG from within there, mm -hmm. and then you can click on the files and jump right to it. Mm -hmm. So I use it that way with the embedded terminal, not the built-in mm -hmm. plugin for VS Code for it. Mm -hmm. I see. So um, going back to this, like the conversation of like Scala versus Ruby, yeah. and like so, um, uh, what's your 
like what's your poison what's your like favorite languages and why um these days scott there are a lot of things that i like about scala um it's fast it's really powerful um the type checking is great on it you can do very complex things in a small amount of code just kind of a good thing kind of a bad thing um you, know, you could do a single line in scala to do crazy complicated searching slicing splitting merging redo mapping yeah. reducing all in one line of code that you will never ever ever in a million years be able to go back and understand if you have to look at it again <laughs> uh so it's it there's a good side and a bad side yeah. to that coin to having that power within the language it's um, right I, on the code <laughs> yeah well i mean you you can do it in a way that's easy to be able to come back and read it again but whenever you're kind of in the moment and think like well geez i just need to chain this and chain this and then i'll just add another dot map and another dot select and you know just just one more chained thing and then i'll be done it can be easy to write but then hard to understand but if you break it apart into smaller mm -hmm. chunks it can be a lot easier to work with uh, but one thing comparing Scala to Ruby, I've, I've hit this again in Ruby today, uh, just being able to see a method name and search for it and know that if you find that in code, that's, the yeah, one. that's okay, that's the one. In Ruby, there's too much magic where you can have code that generates methods on the fly. So if you see a method that's being invoked and search in the code base, that string might not exist anywhere and it can be impossible to figure out where a method is defined. I, th uh, I think I'm here with you. I think that's like my, like, I only started writing Ruby a year ago, and I think that's my main pain point up yeah. to this day, that Ruby is very uh, cheating on you, like, all the time with this. <laughs> and, um, and I think, like, the, the second part is which, like, a lot of languages allow you to omit the appearances. Yeah. Uh, but... Ruby kind of doing it with like when you have it on the left side of assignment and you can basically have something that is really a method call but pre pretend that it's really not yeah and I think <laughs> like this is one more I uh, think that like really drives me nuts all the time in Ruby. yeah um so just um like o overall so like I, I like are you a big like function guy like if you're using the if you I've used to use the Scala I yeah, I've, I've, yeah, I've become a convert to functional programming. I never did any training on it, so I don't really mm -hmm. know anything formal on it, but just learning it, getting used to it, it requires a little bit of a different mindset, but mm -hmm. just the power for what you can do for being able to do the um, you know higher-level compositions of different function calls and map-reduce types of uh, operations, all of that, it... The power that it gives you is just amazing, and it can really simplify a lot of different aspects of things. Yeah. So I, I miss that a little bit whenever using Ruby. It has a few things that use that, and I know you can pass code yeah. blocks around things like that, yeah. but it's, Still it's, not, it's not the same. Yeah, yeah, I agree. <laughs> and uh, I think the, the, the coolest thing when you are uh, kind of working with code that is like in functional style is like, Whatever patterns you have in any other languages, it's still just functional composition here. Yeah. So like yeah. that's the only pattern you need to learn. <laughs> yeah, and then it it also tends to lead to very testable code, which to me that's kind of a whole magic skill within software development is not being able to just write good code, code that works, but being able to write 
code in a way that it's testable Mm -hmm. and generally writing very small uh, you know scoped to a fairly small problem domain functions make it very easy to test things and then compose it and build something more complex and it just works (laughs) um speaking of which so um what are you like what are your ways to like improve like how to how, how you work on your skills because like you obviously like not the first day <laughs> doing what you yeah doing. um uh, so how, how how do you improve how would you work on like your, there's a variety yeah. of things like but part of it is just diving into code here um whenever i started here at a previous job i had worked for maybe six months or so on ruby but hadn't really used ruby at all until coming here mm-hmm. So some of it's just diving into the code, getting your hands dirty and seeing what's happening, mm-hmm. try changing something, seeing what breaks. And more interestingly, sometimes with the non-compiled language, seeing what doesn't break whenever you change something. Um, Which is even more frightening yeah, sometimes. Yeah, it's extremely frightening. Um, so, it, and then going through and looking at code coverage of things, seeing what tooling support there is for all of that is handy. Um, Another thing that I'll do is there's uh, an old, and I think this is probably a, more than a 20-year-old project called Project Euler mm-hmm. that gives a lot of computer science, algorithmic, math kinds of problems, challenges. Yeah. And I found going through those with the new language that I'm picking up, is it's a good way to learn some of the tricks that are mm-hmm. particular to one programming language or another. Mm-hmm. And I'll kind of just gets you comfortable with some of the basics of it mm-hmm. cool um do do you um like one one thing that, uh, people always interested in is like did you have like any mentors in your life did you, did you have like any person that you can say oh like that's how i learned like a lot of things <laughs> or was it yeah just, like, I, I i wouldn't say that there's one but yeah. there are definitely a couple of people from earlier in my career that i work with uh whenever i was just getting started that well to begin with in college mm-hmm. my background was electrical engineering and whenever i got out hey yeah. <laughs> and i uh, got a real job in electrical engineering yeah. i realized i really didn't like it because i was doing other people's kind of garbage work i wasn't even doing electrical engineering work i was doing a lot of clerical type of work and it was boring yeah and i had an opportunity to switch to another group doing software development i said okay i took that one semester of programming in college yeah done i'll do it and um just right away i loved it and part of what i loved is as somebody who was basically an entry-level software engineer, I was doing the same work that everybody else around me was doing. I was getting the easier problems and the more simple problems, but still fundamentally I was doing the same work that they were doing. You know, mm-hmm. Writing tests for stuff, debugging it, writing the code for it, trying to figure everything out. It was the same stuff. And somebody that I worked on there, worked with there, we really dove into in-depth getting into the OS, getting into the hardware, understanding how things work with um, a very complicated locking library where you could do priority-based locks. So Mm -hmm. higher priority things could come in and unlock your code and take over and trump it. And there were some problems with ordering of the locks where we could get into deadlock scenarios. Mm -hmm. And 
working with another guy trying to solve that just the in-depth knowledge you had to have of figuring things out and going into it and just yeah sometimes you couldn't really debug a problem because it would be one of those problems that shows up once a week on hundreds of peoples of of different desktops of different instances so you kind of just have to sit there and look at the code and think and in my mind, like, you know, your mind, that's the best debugger that's out there. Uh, I solve way more problems by just sitting there and thinking through the code than I do trying to actually write a test for it. Mm-hmm. And then think through the code, figure out what the problem is, and then try to write a test to force that problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find that's one of the best techniques. I learned that from somebody. Um, worked with another guy who was one of the most unique people that I've worked with in software Mm -hmm. development because he was one of the smartest people from an algorithms and OS and, you know, really hardcore computer Mm -hmm. science details person, but was also very artistic and design focused and had a great feel for that. And he's really one, I think the only person that I can think of that I've worked with in 20 years of doing this that really was strong in both of those areas. Mm -hmm. I think it's extraordinarily rare to have somebody who's good at both of those. (laughs) Yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's really rare. Even though like there is a saying that like I was telling to people and telling it in Everton, it's just not quite. uh, (laughs) We we tend to really concentrate on something like Mm -hmm. one side that is uh, interesting. So, um, go going back to um, just like learning stuff. So, can you? I think of any like the like good like books or like the blog posts or videos that like you're really kind of going back to and like think okay this is was like really really good resources. I'm I'm trying to think. I know it's been a long time since I read them, but mm-hmm. Code Complete was one, and mm-hmm. there was another one around the same era that was <coughs> that were kind of around just the general how to mentally get yourself set up for software development is mm-hmm. how I thought of those. Um, honestly, it's been probably close to at least 10 maybe 15 years mm-hmm. since I really read those yeah. but uh, I, I remember getting a lot out of those and really enjoying them but lately yeah. though I think we have the code complete here oh yeah yeah, like <laughs> yeah. Uh, lately though honestly it's all Twitter um, mm-hmm. just finding interesting developers in a lot of and I try to find people working in a lot of different areas mm-hmm. follow them on Twitter see what links they're posting see what problems they're working on, what problems they're solving. Cool. Um, are you working on any like um, open source projects like outside of what we have here? I, I play around a little bit with mm-hmm. the, and I, everything that I do, I put up on my personal GitHub, but mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't consider it anything that I expect anybody else to find interesting at all, mm-hmm. um, other than maybe just seeing the challenges that I hit and mm-hmm. looking at my commit history and saying, oh, oops, that didn't work that way. Oops, that didn't work that way. Um, I, I do a, a little bit of that in the open, but yeah, there's not really anything that I've worked on as an open source project. Most of that's just me playing around with, you know, spinning up a Kubernetes cluster and mm-hmm. seeing how it works and seeing, trying to figure out how to run applications on it, stuff like that. Yeah, I, I, I find Kubernetes fascinating. It's uh, it's like such a huge body of knowledge concentrated in the product. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and there are so many problems that are solved that like you, you wouldn't even know that yeah you have those yeah. problems unless unless you actually get to the scale that like uh, companies like Google have and 
the, yeah. the failure is not something unique. It's something that you just like routinely deal with. Yeah, and, and now you can basically get all that yeah. learning for free. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Think about that. Yeah. On There's a build tool that also came out of Google called Blaze that yeah. got open sourced as Basil. I've done playing around with that. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a kind of sort of fork of that version of that at Twitter called Pants. And I really liked using that for working with a mono repo where mm -hmm. you have to build everything because you have explicit uh, dependencies between projects and not mm -hmm. just at a very large project level, but down to single source files saying mm -hmm. this file is dependent on that file over there. And it lets you do incremental builds very quickly because it can look and say, well, you changed these five files, so I need to rebuild everything that depends on those five files, but it mm -hmm. only builds what depends on them. It doesn't it need to build mm -hmm. everything. Yeah, incremental builds is a very convenient feature, which like speed up things a lot. And unfortunately, we don't have them yet. Yeah, well, you yeah. don't really have that with yeah. Ruby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, keep your balance, like, of, or just like of having, like, of protecting your free time. I, I basically just force it, and I say my free time is yeah. my free time. Yeah. Uh, the very rare and occasional crunch time yeah. happens, and, you know, it's okay, yeah. you, that's all right, but I've just... I've always pushed back very, very, very hard when it, on mm -hmm. anybody, you know, looking, looking just to put in hours at work or anything mm -hmm. like that. Anything getting to be too late where I say, you know, no, I need my time. I need to relax. I, I just leave. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, I feel like you kind of have to force it, mm -hmm. and it depends. I, I guess I've also been lucky for most of my career just to have been on teams where that was kind of the team mentality yeah. of mm -hmm. don't overwork you're going to do better work if you're well rested so you know you might as well yeah. take the time off to go home and rest the very few times that i haven't i've just said yeah goodbye okay, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm sorry i yeah. have something to go on right now mm -hmm. uh Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, this is good. So, um, and uh, having said that, so like, what are you actually doing in your free time? What's what's your hobbies and what's your... Uh, lately, it, it, it's been uh, golfing. So I've t taken yeah. that up recently. Yeah. Um, well, recently being about a year but, mm -hmm. ago, but it's a very slow process to yeah. improve at that. So, yeah, that's taken a bit of time, a lot of weekends, and then... Um, uh, doing a lot of wine tasting to, with my wife. We get out, uh, Not by, you know, being in the Bay Area, yeah. we're kind of spoiled being able to get up to Napa and Sonoma and yeah. see some of the best places in the world. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah, this, this is true. Like, we, we, we have a, yeah, I like it, having so many different places right next to next door. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, um, uh, cheesy question, right? So just, sure. uh, why golfing? You know, it's something that I've always been vaguely interested in mm -hmm. and you know at some point we're going to be out of this business we're yeah. going to be retiring yeah. and i just know myself I'm, I'm going to need a thing to keep me interested and active uh -huh. and golfing is just one of those things you can do your whole life you know i've been golfing around here in the city with people using walkers to get around mm -hmm. and a golf cart and hey they can still get out there and do it it's something you can do 
pretty much right till the end of your life. So it, it's a little bit looking forward to that uh -huh. time of retirement, just ha to have something to do. Uh, and yeah, it's just something that's fun. So some of my friends got into it mm -hmm. and that's the thing that kicked off the drive for me to basically finally get off my butt and learn it a bit is uh, just going out and playing with friends. So I do that. Uh, not quite every weekend now, but close to it. Get out and do some playing. So what was like the, the most surprising part about this? Because it probably <clears throat> I had like some unexpected... I thought it was going to take longer to get to the point where it wasn't humiliating to play with people who've you know played mm -hmm. for a while. I'm, I'm used to playing more competitive sports where you're doing uh, you know head-to-head -head tennis or something like yeah. that, where if there's a significant skill difference it's just miserable for both people nobody enjoys it if you're way better than somebody or way worse than somebody it's no fun at all mm -hmm. um golfing i've been out it really it took going out once or twice to get to the point where you're not embarrassing yourself yeah you know, I, i still play terribly i am a really bad golfer but i can do around with people who are you know near the point of pro golfers you know scratch golfers play a great game of golf and we can play together and it still is a good time i'm not slowing them down too much it's yeah it's fun okay um and uh any um any advice on golfing or just like in the <laughs> career and the life in general golfing take a little bit of lessons it's it's worth it um career yeah the work-wise for computer programming never be afraid to ask questions um i've seen a lot of people just sit and struggle and force themselves to figure everything out themselves and you just you can't do that these days it's a lot easier because you can go to stack overflow and yeah. things like that and get a lot of help on your own but um yeah still don't don't hesitate too much to ask people around you Don't for struggle. help uh, yeah. whatever you're having problems with other people probably have to <laughs> That, that's a great advice thank you yeah. Know your carrots.